This is another special uh, installment on the e Economics of Wellbeing podcast. It's Mark Nielski. It's April 20th, Monday, 2020. We're still in the economic uh, meltdown or crisis that we're finding ourselves in. A recent article just posted by my friend Ellen Brown, who's the probably the world's expert on public banking, uh, is very uh, instructive for consideration today. Ellen's article is called uh, A Universal Basic Income is Essential and Will Work. Uh, Ellen uh, published this article today in reflecting on Spain's announcement that it will try to introduce a universal basic income uh, as soon as possible. One of the big questions, of course, uh, with any type of so-called helicopter money, what was uh, a term used when the central bank injects money into the economy, uh, is where will this money come from to pay for the universal income that uh, some Canadians are, are, of course, now experiencing with direct infusions of cash in their bank accounts. Uh, as Ellen writes, helicopter money uh, is simply money issued by the central bank and injected into the economy and could be used in many ways, including building infrastructure, capitalizing national infrastructure and development, uh, providing free state university tuition or funding Medicare or Social Security or universal basic income. In our current crisis, she writes, in which a government mandated shutdown has left hundreds and thousands more vulnerable than at any time since the Great Depression, a universal basic income seems to be the most direct and efficient way to get money to everyone who needs it. But some critics, of course, argue that it will just trigger inflation and collapse the dollar. Simply typing extra digits into a computer does not make us wealthy, she writes. If this insane theory of printing money for almost everyone on a permanent basis takes hold, the value of the dollars in our pocketbooks will continue to erode. But having done a, quite a bit of study on, on this idea of a universal basic income, uh, she notes that there are some important things to consider. First, the, same, the basics of modern money not, must be understood. As she notes, we don't have a fixed and stable money system. We have a credit system in which money is created and destroyed by banks every day. Money is created as a deposit when the bank makes a loan and is extinguished when the loan is repaid. This was explained in detail by the Bank of England and the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, who is from Edmonton originally. When fewer loans are being created than are being repaid, the money supply shrinks. This phenomenon is called debt deflation, deflation that triggers recessions and depressions. The term helicopter money was coined to describe the cure for that much feared syndrome. Economist Milton Friedman said it was easy to cure deflation, just print money and rain it down from helicopters on the people. But our money supply, Ellen writes, is in a chronic state of deflation due to the way money comes into existence. Banks create the principal, but do not create the interest needed to repay their loans. Let me repeat that. Banks create the principal, but do not create the interest needed to repay their loans. So, more money is always owed back than was created in the original loans. This is a really important thing to understand. Debt always grows faster than the money supply. This is also true of the relationship between debt and GDP. 
debt is growing faster than the economic growth of the whole economy as measured by GDP. When the debt burden grows so large, the borrowers cannot take on more debt, they pay down old loans without taking out new ones, and the money supply begins to shrink or it deflates. Critics of this debt virus theory say that the gap between debt and the money available to repay can be filled through the velocity of money. Debts are repaid over time, and if the payments received collectively by the lenders are spent back into the economy, they are collectively available to the debtors to pay their next monthly balances. The flaw in this argument, she writes, is that money created as a loan is extinguished on repayment and is not available to be spent back into the economy. Repayment zeroes out the debt, the debit, by which it was created, and the money just disappears. Another problem, she writes, with respect to the velocity of money argument is that lenders don't typically spend their profits back into the consumer economy. In fact, we have two types of economies. The consumer or producer economy, where goods and services are produced and traded, and the financialized or financialized economy, where money chases yields without producing new goods and services. Yields in this case are returns on stocks in the stock markets. The financial economy is essentially a parasite on the real economy, she writes, and it now contains most of the money in the system. What do we mean by that? Most of the money that we say is money is in fact debt money that was created in the financialized economy. In fact, close to 98% of what we consider money is debt money, which is outstanding and cannot be repaid. The central bank routinely manipulates the money supply to prop up financial markets. That means corporate owners and investors can make more and faster money in the financial economy than by investing in workers and equipment. Bankers, investors, and other savers put their money in stocks and bonds. They hide it in offshore tax havens, send it abroad, or just keep it in cash. At the end of 2018, U.S. corporations were sitting on $1.7 trillion in cash and 70% of $100 bills were held overseas. That number is certainly much higher now as cash is sitting on the sidelines, having been sold during this economic and COVID pandemic. What is a universal basic income? Meanwhile, the producer or consumer economy is left with the insufficient investment and insufficient demand. GDP remains well below both the long-term trend and the level predicted by forecasters a decade ago. In 2016, real per capita GDP was 10% below what's known as the Congressional Budget Office's 2006 forecast and shows no sign of returning to the pre predicted level. In my own work, I've shown that the debt-to-GDP ratio has been rising from a, a constant 150%, so debt to GDP was 150% between 1950 and 1973, and is now exceeding 100, 360%. So that is doubling, or more than doubling, since 1974. 1974 was an important time when there was a decoupling of the power of the central bank to create money. In other words, the power of money creation which was originally kind of like a free utility was handed to the private banks. And we see that ratio of debt to GDP 
begin to accelerate after 1974. In ancient Mesopotamia, the gap between debt and money available to repay it was corrected with periodic debt jubilees, or what the Sumerians called clean slate. This is when loans were forgiven, in other words, wiped out. But today, lenders are not kings and temples, as Ellen writes. They are private bankers who don't engage in debt forgiveness because their mandate is to maximize shareholder profits, because by doing so, they would risk insolvency themselves. But there is another way to avoid the debt gap, and that is by filling it with regular injections of new debt-free money. How will we do this? How can we inject free money to stabilize the money supply? As Ellen writes, with the mandated shutdown from the coronavirus exacerbated, has simply exacerbated the debt crisis, which was already a crisis before the pandemic. The outstanding debt in the United States, I've estimated, is about $74 trillion based on U.S. Federal Reserve statistics. And the interest costs associated with that debt constitutes roughly 53 cents on every dollar that an American household will earn. That's half of your working week going to be spent on interest charges, which are embedded in every dollar of debt that fuels our economy. As she writes, Ellen says, the economy was already suffering from an unprecedented buildup of debt. A universal basic income would address the gap between the consumer debt and the money available to pay it. There are equivalent gaps for business debt, federal debt, state, and municipal debt, leaving room for a, quite a bit of what they call helicopter money before any debt deflation would turn into inflation. When we look at the level of consumer debt in the United States, in 2019, 80% of U.S. households had to borrow to meet expenses. After the 2008 crisis, income and debt combined were not sufficient to fill the gap. By 2019, about one-third of student loans and car loans were defaulting, or had already defaulted. This predictable result was a growing wave of personal bankruptcies, bank bankruptcies, and debt deflation. An analyst, Mr. Roberts, shows that the gap between annual real disposable income and the cost of living was over $15,000 per person in 2019, and the annual deficit that could not be filled even by borrowing was $3,200. Now let's assume, Ellen writes, a national dividend dropped directly into people's bank accounts of $1,200 per month or $14,200 per year. This would come close to filling that average gap of $15,000 needed to the gap between real disposable income and the cost of living. If the 80% of recipients needing to borrow to meet expenses use the money to repay their consumer debts, that is their credit cards, student loans, medical bills, that money would void out debt and disappear. These loans, these loan repayments could be made mandatory and automatic and the other 20% of recipients who don't need to borrow to meet expenses would need their national dividends for that purpose either, would not need their national dividends. Most would save it or invest it in non-consumer markets. And the money that was actually spent on consumer goods and services would help fill the 10% gap between real and potential GDP, allowing supply to rise with demand, keeping prices stable. 
the end result would be no net increase in the consumer price index. Let me repeat, the net result would be no net increase in the consumer price index. The current economic shutdown will necessarily result in shortages and the prices of those commodities can be expected to inflate, but it won't be the result of a demand or pull inflation triggered by helicopter money. It will be the cost push inflation from factory closures, supply disruptions, and increased business costs. In plain language, what Ellen is saying is that the shortages that we'll see, the pressure for inflation will come from the fact that our stores and our factories have been closed, resulting in a pent-up uh, pent demand and insufficient supply, not a lack of money itself. We see from history, Ellen writes, that this notion of hyperinflation has been seen throughout history in the Weimar, Germany, in Zimbabwe, in Venezuela. And these, however, were not caused by government printing money to stimulate the economy. According to economic historian Professor Michael Hudson, who has studied the question of debt systems throughout human history, he writes that every hyperinflation in history has been caused by foreign debt service collapsing the exchange rate. The problem almost always has resulted from wartime foreign currency strains, not domestic spending. This is a very important point. That hyperinflation was caused by foreign debt service collapsing the exchange rate, not by domestic spending. Probably the most important of all the reflections in Ellen's article is a reflection on China and Japan. China, as Ellen pointed out, adopted Abraham Lincoln's monetary policies way back when the nationalists took over from the Qing dynasty and the communists under Mao Zedong took over the nationalists. Lincoln argued that money should be a public kind of utility created by the people for the people without the charge of interest associated with that debt money. Governments would simply spend the money into existence and tax it back through the economic levers it has under its power. In the last two decades, China, having adopted Lincoln's monetary policies, China's M2 money supply grew by 11 trillion won in, in the early, in two decades ago, to 194 million, an increase of 1,800%. Yet the average inflation rate measured by the consumer price index has remained stable between 2 and 3% during this entire two decades. So the flood of money injected into the economy, 1,800% increase in the M2 money supply did not trigger an inflationary crisis because China's GDP grew at the same pace as the money supply, allowing supply and demand to rise together. Another factor was that the Chinese propensity to save has been very important. As incomes went up, the percentage of income spent on goods and services actually went down. In other words, the difference was savings. In Japan, the massive stimulus programs called Abenomics, after the, Chinese, after the Japanese Prime Minister Abe, have been funded through bond purchases by the Japanese Central Bank. The Bank of Japan has now monetized nearly half of the government's debt 
injecting new money into the economy by purchasing government bonds with yen created by the bank's books. If the U.S. Fed did this, or the Bank of Canada, it would own $12 trillion in U.S. government bonds, over three times the $3.6 trillion in Treasury debt it holds now. Yet Japan's inflation rate remains below the Bank of Japan's 2% target. Deflation continues to be a greater concern in Japan than inflation, despite unprecedented debt monetization by its central bank. Those who are wary of the or critics of a universal basic income as a road to totalitarianism or the cash of society need to consider for a minute some of the counter-arguments. It does not make people dependent on the government so long as they can work. Work is important. Work connected to basic income is important. This does not engender laziness or couch surfing or sitting. It is just a supplementary income, similar to the dividends investors get from their stocks. A universe, universal basic income does not make people lazy, Ellen writes, as numerous studies have shown. To the contrary, and these studies include a universal basic income experiment in Manitoba in the 1970s. To the contrary, she writes, universal basic incomes become more productive with them than without them. And a universal, in other words, people become more productive with them than without them. A universal basic income does not mean cash would be eliminated. Over 90% of the money supply is already digital. Universal basic income payments can be distributed digitally without changing the system at all. A universal basic income can serve the goals both of fiscal policy, providing a vital safety net for citizens in desperate times, and of monetary policy by stabilizing the money supply. The consumer producer economy actually needs regular injections of helicopter money to remain sustainable, stimulate economic productivity, and avoid deflationary recessions. That's Ellen's article. What I want to do is reflect on the fact that we in Canada can achieve a similar situation as China has by revitalizing the role of the central bank, the Bank of Canada, and creating enough liquidity for Canadians to have a sufficient living wage, to have productive lives, to contribute their assets and their skills to an economy that is based on well-being. A well-being economy can be fashioned in this manner, in which monetary policy is directly linked to the well-being aspirations and assets of the nation, just like China has done over the last two decades, without inflation, creating a very stable economy of sustainable well-being. Not necessarily growth as China has done, because China was catching up to the rest of the world, but an economy in which well-being is optimized across all households and across the whole economy in harmony with natural systems.